recall that after that healing, uh, he was uh, thrown out of the fellowship, excommunicated, I suppose would be a way to say it, of the religious community of the Jews because of what he confessed about Jesus. He didn't know much about him, but he did uh, affirm that this one had healed him and that whereas he was blind, now he could see. And so uh, as a result of his confession, these uh, Jewish leaders who were so antagonistic and hostile toward Jesus uh, caused him to be thrown out of their fellowship of the Jews. And uh, you may recall that that sign of our Lord, of the healing of that blind man, was one of the signs that John pointed to in his writing of the gospel to authenticate Jesus' claim to be the Son of God. And that through that, then, people might be brought to faith, that they might have life uh, through his name. Well, then there is a gap of time from uh, verse 18 and on. You'll notice in verse 22, uh, several months later, that the time of the Feast of the Dedication took place at Jerusalem. That Feast of Dedication was not one of the Feasts of Jehovah established by the Lord and recorded in Leviticus. But the Feast of Dedication was a cultural feast of the Jews that went back to the Maccabean War and to the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, whom we studied about in the book of Daniel. And it was winter time, and Jesus was again in the city of Jerusalem in the Temple Mount when he picked up again this teaching regarding the shepherd and the sheep. John says in verse 6 that it's a figure of speech a figure of speech that Jesus was using. The idea is it was an extended metaphor. It involved an implied comparison. Jesus said over here, I am the door of the sheep in verse 7. Obviously Jesus wasn't saying that he was literally a door, but there is an implied comparison here. It's a metaphor. Uh, He is the entrance. He is the way in for the sheep is the idea. He calls himself a shepherd. And again, his vocation in life was not that of a shepherd, and yet there is an implied comparison here, you see, because he acted like a shepherd, caring for the flock of God. This metaphor is one that was used in the Old Testament. David in Psalm 23:1 said, The Lord is my what? My shepherd. Talking about the way that he saw his relationship to God. There's an implied comparison there. The Lord is like a shepherd to the believer. Uh, In Psalm 80 and verse 1, the Lord is called the shepherd of his people Israel. And so of the whole nation of Israel, God was the shepherd. In the book of Ezekiel, I don't know if Mark has gotten there yet in his study of the book of Ezekiel, but in the 34th chapter of Ezekiel, in the first part of that chapter, there's a warning through Ezekiel the prophet, uh, to the false shepherds of Israel, the religious leaders. They were exploiting the people of God. They were not sincerely interested in their welfare, but only their own welfare. And so there is a condemnation of the false shepherds. And then later in the chapter, God says, I am going to shepherd my people like sheep. 
And he says, I am going to send David to shepherd them. Now that's an interesting statement because David had died hundreds of years before this. And God says, I'm going to send David to be the shepherd of the sheep, the people of Israel. Well, the reference is to the Messiah, the greater son of David, who will one day shepherd the reunited and believing remnant of Israel and Judah. When interpreting a biblical allegory, it's important to keep in mind some very basic and simple rules. In the first place, we must be careful not to press meaning into every feature of the symbol. That is true here in the text of the the shepherd. It's true in chapter 15 regarding the vine. Whenever you see an allegory in the Bible, be careful of not trying to press it too far. To make everything about that symbol mean something. Normally there is a central primary thought in that allegory and that's what we're to focus on. Furthermore, we need to realize that what may be impossible in terms of the symbol is often true and reasonable with regard to its reality. For example, uh, here Jesus calls himself the door of the sheep and the shepherd. Well, a door can't be a shepherd, but in fact our Savior can be both. So what is often impossible in terms of the symbol is often true and reasonable with regard to its reality. The main point here is that Jesus Christ is the good shepherd. The good shepherd in contrast to the hirelings, the thieves, the robbers who exploited the sheep of Israel even in Jesus' time. As the good shepherd, he laid down his life on behalf of the sheep and then took it up again so that he might call out his own sheep to follow him. Now with that background in mind, let's look closer at our text and the particular promise that is in view as we think about the precious promises of the Bible. Tonight, the promise of security. Jesus promised safekeeping to his sheep. He said, I give eternal life to them. They shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. I think as we consider this idea of the security of the sheep of our Lord, we need to think about first the identity of the sheep. Who are these sheep that he has in mind? Are they all of the Jews? Are they all of the people in the world? Who are these sheep that Jesus says, hear his voice, and whom he knows, and who then follow him, and to whom he makes this promise of security? Well, the answer in the context of this chapter in verse 9 is that they are the ones who come through the door. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. Now here's a case where some people try to press the image too far, this going in and going out. There are some who try to say, well, you see, we can come in to be saved and we can go out and lose our salvation. Then we can come back in again and go out again. Well, that's silly. That's pressing the details of the image here too far. Jesus was simply saying that when you use the door uh, and you become one of his own, you have the right of being his sheep. 
And he cares for your needs, going in and out and finding pasture like sheep did in that day. They didn't always stay in the fold. The shepherd took them out to pasture, then would bring them back to the fold at night. So he's simply using the the idea here that those who come through the door, and he is the door, those who believe on him are saved, and then really belong to him. They are become his sheep. Furthermore, he says in our text in verse 29 that his sheep are those who are given to him by the Father. They are God's gift to the Son. My Father who has given them to me, he says, is greater than all. Well, we could look at other verses in the Gospel of John and see that unless in fact the Father draws us, we will not come to the Son. Our sin is such that uh, we will rebel. We will not come voluntarily and willingly to the Lord unless we are drawn. But God draws and we respond. Those who are given to Jesus by the Father are his sheep. Or to say it another way, his sheep are those who give evidence of being his sheep because they believe Verse 26 says that, you do not believe, he says, you're not my sheep. So by implication, and going again to verse 9, those who believe are his sheep. Who are Jesus' sheep? Well, they are those who give evidence by their belief that they belong to him. They are those who, in verse 27, hear his voice. They do not recognize the voice of a hireling, a false shepherd, But they know the voice of the Savior. And as a result of that, he says, they follow him. Again in verse 27. They turn away from strangers. In verse 4 it says, When he puts forth all his own, he goes before them, the shepherd. And the sheep follow him because they know his voice. And a stranger they simply will not follow. But will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. We might not understand that relationship that exists between a shepherd and his sheep. It is a a relationship between a human being and animals. But it is a relationship. And it is a familiar relationship. The shepherd knows his sheep. He recognizes them. And they know him by his voice. And others can come along who are also shepherds. They can speak to the sheep. They can call the sheep. They can try to woo the sheep. But the sheep will not respond to that voice. Because they know the voice of their shepherd. So who are the sheep? Well, the sheep are identified as those who have entered by the door. And who are thus saved. That is, those who have um, been given to Jesus by the Father. Those who give evidence of being his sheep because they believe and they know the voice of the shepherd and they follow him. You see, the proof of one being a sheep of the Lord is found in his continuance in following the shepherd. It is the continuance. It doesn't mean that he won't have times of straying, it doesn't mean that there won't be times when he will stumble. But the general direction of the Lord's sheep is that he follows the Savior. He follows the shepherd. And that is evidence and proof of his genuineness. 
Well, let's think about the security of the sheep for a moment. It seems to me that in our text here it is fixed upon four thoughts. These are words from Jesus. He says, first of all, regarding those who are his sheep, I give eternal life to them. Eternal life is the same thing as abundant life back in verse 10. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. It's the same thing as eternal life. Let's think about the nature of the giving here, this act. Jesus says, I give eternal life to them. This verb is a present tense verb. It implies that it's a, an action on his part. He keeps on giving eternal life to them. It is a present possession that his sheep have right now and which our Lord continues to give them right on in to eternity. It is the wonderful privilege of the child of God to enjoy this abundant eternal life right now. Even before we enter heaven, to enter into the essence of the life of heaven. Because it is the life of God. And keep in mind that giving implies an act of grace. Jesus doesn't say, I dole out wages of eternal life to them. He says, I give eternal life to them. And so this act on our Lord's part is an act of grace. So as we receive eternal life as a gift, apart from any works on our part, so we continue to receive eternal life from Him, apart from any works on our part. There are those who say, well, yes, we get saved by grace, but we can lose it by works. Not so. That's illogical. We are saved by the grace of God, and we are kept saved by the grace of God. It is an act of giving on our Lord's part. And then I think of the nature of the gift itself. It is called eternal life. Eternal life. That is existence that is both rooted in the eternal God and which also pertains to a yet future age. It's eternal life. It's life that brings union with God himself and fellowship with him. Jesus speaks about this life later as he prays to the Father. And he says, Thou glorify thy Son, that the Son may glorify thee, even as thou gavest him authority over all mankind, that to all whom thou hast given him, notice that, He may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Eternal life is a matter of union between the one who believes and the eternal God. And God shares with that one his own life. It doesn't mean that the believer somehow becomes God but it does mean that he shares in the very life of the Eternal One. It is a gift. And it's a quality of life that is distinct from that which is known in the world. It's the kind of life that lasts forever, eternal life. It's a basis of a relationship. This is eternal life that they might know thee, it says. It's not this is eternal life that they might take the ordinances. This is eternal life that they might belong to the church. 
Uh, but this is eternal life, that they might know thee. One of the persons who shared a testimony this afternoon indicated uh, earlier on the phone to me today that she had been raised in a certain church uh, all of her early years, and that there she heard about Jesus and God and his death on the cross and so on, but it was all uh, kind of institutional. It was related to the church and it was only in the last few months after coming into contact with one of the families of our church that she came to understand that really eternal life comes not as the result of being in a church, but as the result of knowing God personally. It's a relationship. Jesus said, I give eternal life to them. And then he says, secondly, the second thought upon which our security is fixed, they shall never perish. Perish. That's a term Jesus uses in John 3.16. Shall not perish, but have everlasting life. The very same verb is in view here. The idea is to be ruined or to be lost. It's the same word as used back in verse 10 where Jesus says, The thief comes only to kill, to steal, and kill, and to ruin, to destroy. There's the word perish, same word. Here, however, Jesus ties that verb together with another negative, so that there's a double negative. Literally, it would say this, And they shall not never perish. That's awful English, isn't it? It's terrific Greek. Because what it means is that they shall not by any means perish. When the Greek wrote out his sentences and he put two negatives together, it wasn't like the English where that equals a positive. It meant, I am underscoring, I am underlining, I am emphasizing the impossibility of this. And so as John records these words of our Lord, he says, And they shall not perish by any means unto the age. That is, ever. They shall never perish, he says. That's wonderful news, folks. That means that when we pass from death to life, it's a one-way passage the door never opens again. We don't go back through it. The door opens one way to life. It slams shut. That's it. And it's impossible for us again to go back to death. To go back to a state of being ruined. To perish. Jesus said, I give to them eternal life. And they shall never by any means perish. And then he says... No one shall snatch them out of my hand. Now that's an interesting image, isn't it? The implication is that that is where we have been placed as his sheep. If you give a gift to someone, you don't throw it at his feet. You hand it to that other individual. That seems to be in Jesus' mind here as he says, No one is able to snatch them out of my hand where we have been placed by the Father as a gift to the Son. This idea here of snatching means to seize, 
to carry off by force. It means to drag away. It means to take away suddenly and forcefully. It is the word used in verse 12 where it speaks about the wolves who snatch the sheep. We used to raise some sheep on the farm and I saw the result of some coyotes, not wolves, but coyotes, who uh, did exactly what Jesus talked about here. Who out there in the field seized a little lamb and as a result of that drugged the, dragged the lamb away and then killed it and, and ate it. Jesus says here that no one is able to snatch us, to drag us away from him. This is the same word that's used, by the way, in the rapture passage of 1 Thessalonians 4, about our being caught up to be with the Lord, snatched away. Here it's used in a different context. Jesus says no one can snatch us away from him. It is wonderful to know that our security rests upon the ability of the shepherd to keep us, and not upon our frailty, our inability to keep ourselves. Our security rests upon the power of our shepherd to keep us. And he says, no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on with one more thought upon which our security is fixed. He says, my father who's given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. No one he says, is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. The better reading, perhaps, of this first part of verse 29, there is a dispute here as to um, exactly what the best manuscripts say. There is an alternative reading that intrigues me, and uh, I rather like uh, I'm not enough of a Greek scholar to know whether it's in fact to be preferred or not. But the other reading says this, What my Father has given to me is greater than all. I can tell you that the, the oldest of the manuscripts that we have of the, the Greek text from John say that that is the rendering of it. And it fits wonderfully with the whole context here. What my Father has given to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch that out of my Father's hand. In other words, uh, we may very well be what Jesus had in mind here when he said this. We are the ones who have been given to him by the Father. And he says, what the Father has given to me is more excellent more precious than anything. And the, the picture seems to be that what the Father gives to His Son, He Himself still holds secure because of its precious value. And so our Lord is saying here, it seems, that we have been given by the Father to the Son, and we are more precious to Him than anything. There is nothing of greater value than we who are the sheep of the Savior. And we are so precious that he himself keeps his hand upon us so that we have double security. The same idea is found in Colossians 3.3 where Paul writes, Your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
The picture there again is double security. We are hidden with Christ and in God. To be hidden is a wonderful thought. It means to conceal something. The, the Greek word gives us a, an English word, cryptic. The cryptic writing of the author. It means the, the hidden, concealed truth there. Or we use the word crypt, where we hide or conceal the bodies of, of dead ones. The crypt. Here the thought is that our life is crypted away with Christ in God. It suggests secrecy. We who know Jesus Christ are nurtured by secret springs that the world knows not of. But it also implies safety because of the double protection that is here. Your life is hid, he says, with Christ in God. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I want to say to you that these four thoughts form a firm foundation for the security of the believer. I give eternal life to them. They shall never by any means perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And then Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Oh, this is quite a statement. And the Jews understood exactly what he was implying by it, that he and the Father were equal. That's why they took up stones to stone him. This is one of the verses I use with Jehovah's Witnesses. Because uh, Jesus here very clearly is claiming blasphemy. And even if they can't understand that, the Jews in that day understood it. That he was claiming to be equal with the Father. That's why they picked up the stones. I and the Father are one. In other words, this safekeeping that he's talked about is their common purpose. It is the will, it is the activity of the Father and the Son to keep us safe. The Father and the Son do not have an argument over us. They do not take a vote saying, shall we keep him or not? I'm glad for that. The Father and the Son are one, and they are united in purpose that we will be kept secure. F.F. F. Bruce says, where the eternal well-being of true believers is concerned, the Son's determination and pledge to guard them from harm is endorsed by the Father's word and confirmed by the Father's all-powerful act. This is the will of him who sent me, Jesus has already said that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up at the last day, John 6.39. In guarding his people, he is obedient to the Father's will. What wonder, then, if they are simultaneously guarded by the Father himself? What the Father has given to the Son, he himself protects and secures by his own omnipotence. It is possible to go to heaven without understanding this promise we've looked at tonight. There are many people in heaven tonight who may be a little surprised they're there because they didn't understand this promise. That's all right. But to grasp it brings heaven even now to the heart of the child of God. 
One can go through life without this assurance of being kept by God. One can have the ups and downs, the roller coaster rides of the Christian life that that produces. I know what I'm talking about as a young person. I experienced that. But oh, the assurance, the glory that fills the heart when one finally understands and accepts the promise that is given here. I think that was Fanny Crosby's uh, assurance as she wrote those words. Blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. She understood the promise that is made here. Herbert Lockyer suggests that the communion with, that we have with our Savior may be ruptured, but our union with him can never be severed. All who are the Lord's are being kept and will one day be raised up. The important question, of course, is, are you among the number given by the Father to the Son? You say, well, I'm not sure. I don't know. How, how can I know? Well, do you believe? Will you believe? If you will believe, you are one. Do you hear his voice? Are you following him? If so, you're one of his sheep. How wonderful to be his sheep and to know this promise that the shepherd keeps us. Let's pray. Father, I pray if there's someone here tonight who is struggling with this matter of, of assurance that there will be this evening a settling of that issue in the heart and that based upon the promises of your word sweet and blessed assurance may rest in that heart thank you for the promise of safekeeping that Jesus made to us it is precious indeed and brings peace to our soul we thank you that one day you are going to bring us to heaven, but even now you've brought heaven to us because of this promise. And we're grateful. Amen. I'd like for us to sing together a brief hymn number 327. A Swedish hymn, Children of the Heavenly Father. And the words of it express so beautifully this whole idea of our safekeeping. Let's stand as we sing in closing. Children of the Heavenly Father Safely in his bosom gather, nestling bird nor star in heaven, such a refuge there was given. God his own doth tend and nourish in his holy courts they flourish from all evil things he spares them in his mighty 
arms he bears them. Neither life nor death shall ever from the Lord his children sever. Unto them his grace he showeth, and their sorrows all he knoweth. Though he giveth or he taketh, God his children ne'er forsaketh. Is the loving purpose only to preserve them pure and holy? Oh, those are great words. Thank you, Father, for that assurance of which we have sung and studied tonight from your word. Father, I pray that you will encourage us as we go our way that your eye is upon us, that you delight in our lives, that you wish to give us the fullness of all that you are in our daily experience. May we find that you are all that we need. Fathers, we depart from this place tonight. Our, Our minds go to our friends in Indonesia, John and Melody and Tom, We pray for that team that you will keep your hand on them this week as they finish their work and return uh, the first of next week. And grant that their hearts will overflow with the joy of seeing what you've done through them during these weeks they've invested there. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And good night.